following is a production of the Lance J Radio Network and Best in the World Sports, a division of Definitive Visions Multimedia. The opinions and views expressed are certainly those of the host and do not represent the views of Lance J Radio Network or NBC Sports Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Offense, Defense, and Discourse. My name is Brown, my partner Jonesy. Not in the studio with me today, but I got good news. He is on the phone. He is here with me right now. What's going on? Let me bring in Mike Jones. Oh, man, what's going on? I wish I could be there in the studio with you, but we're still going to do a fun show today. I'm looking forward to it. Look, we don't need to be in the same room to argue and have different opinions on sports. You know, I can argue with Mike wherever i've argued with mike on twitter i've argued with mike over the phone i have argued with mike in the same room so don't let that be you know don't let that be a deterrent you are still going to get a lot of offense you're going to get a lot of defense and a whole lot more discourse on this week's show all right let's get started uh nfl draft let's jump right into it what were your thoughts i mean i mean I don't even know any other way to put it. What were your thoughts on the NFL draft? Well, NFL draft, you know, you know, we have, like I was telling you before the summer, before we started the show today, we're going to be digging into the NFL draft and what we think and what we expect in NFL predictions for the next several months. But right now is the time to get those immediate reactions. Yeah. And there are a couple things that stuck out to me from the draft. Um, the first being something you just brought up before we started, the New York Giants. That was probably my, I don't want to, the biggest surprise to me. I'm not going to go as far as some people who have been calling the Giants idiots and really bashing them. Uh-huh. But, the pick was somewhat puzzling. The pick of a Jones from Duke to quarterback was somewhat puzzling simply because there was no buzz about him going that early in the draft. And the Giants, who had two first-round picks, used the earlier of their two picks to take a quarterback who was not projected to go in the top 10. So, with Gettleman, he pretty much put it all on the line with this one. If in two year, three years from now, this kid is a stud, Gettleman's a genius, and he's a made man. If halfway through year one or year two, this kid is throwing picks at a record pace and just can't hit the broad side of a barn, Gettleman's career is over. He definitely attached his career to this kid, a quarterback from Duke. So that was the biggest shock to me, I think, coming out of the draft. Now, I don't want to say it's a terrible pick, like I said, because especially with quarterbacks, you really just don't know. I completely agree with you. And for me, as an Eagles fan, I take pride. I jump at the opportunity 
to make fun of another NFC East team. I want to laugh at the Giants. I want to laugh at the Cowboys. I want to laugh at the Redskins. But for me, I, I agree with what you said in the fact that I feel like it's too early. It's too easy right now to look at the Giants and look at how they jumped at the opportunity to grab a quarterback that had no juice, no mm-hmm. buzz. It's too easy to do that right now. But but for me, I know how my sports life has been. And in my sporting life, it would be it, it would just make too much sense for me to come out here now and say, Oh, the Giants are idiots. The Giants are stupid. How dumb can the Giants be? I can't believe they did this. You know, this is so stupid. You know, what what a dumb organization. And then have to deal with this kid lighting up the Eagles for the next 10 to 15 years. I mean... That's, for me, I feel like that's 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 how my life would go. <laughs> and, and I can see that completely. Uh, the one thing I will say is, is this, in regards to quarterback drafting, just look at mm-hmm. the recent history of drafting quarterbacks. You would see guys like Tebow went in the first round, couldn't throw. You see a guy like Russell Wilson who went in the third round and ended up being one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go back to the Russell Wilson draft, if someone had taken him in the first round bid, we'd all be calling them idiots. Yeah. But, you know, with hindsight being what it is, if you look at that Russell Wilson draft now, they very easily could have gotten the best quarterback out of that class. And that's a class that included, I believe, Andrew Luck and RG3. Mm-hmm. And RG3, who is now a backup quarterback, who's now a backup quarterback, and who was the number two overall, pick, number two overall backup pick, quarterback, backup quarterback. Yep. And Andrew Luck, so, who people are still who has shown promise, but still, you know, there's still a lot of question marks about his durability and his ability. Exactly. So. Then that goes to the point I was making where it's because it was a quarterback that they drafted, mm-hmm. it's really just too soon to tell. Yeah. If it had been from other positions they might have reached for, it would be a lot easier to lambast them and say they messed up completely. Mm-hmm. But quarterback, you just don't know until you see the kid on the field. Yeah, and it's, and it's going to be a minute. I, I feel like, honestly, I know a lot of people are saying that Eli Manning should be pissed. But for me, I feel like, honestly, unless this kid just comes out looking like like the second coming. He's on the bench for at least a year. Yeah, you know, anyway. yeah, unless he just comes in and just looks like the absolute truth. Then Eli's got nothing to worry about because it's not like Eli's playing for another 10 years. Exactly. You know, Eli has maybe a year or two left in him. He's got a year or two heavy, left. Mm-hmm. There was heavy speculation that he might have retired after this past season, which surprised people that some people that he returned. So the fact that the Giants are looking, drafting a quarterback who's likely to be a project, that should not. Yeah, if I'm Eli. That should not affect Eli's yeah. motivation or confidence at all. If I'm Eli, I'm good. It's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to be all right. I got nothing to worry about. I mean, unless this dude just comes in and just, 
you know, transforms into Joe Montana in the flesh. You know, he I just Eli's got nothing to worry about. But let me ask you, you know, before you know, before we pivot over to, you know, more draft news and more more draft stories. Mm-hmm. Giants go out on a limb to get their quarterback at number six. Do you compare, do you or could you compare this to the Eagles and Carson Wentz? Now, Carson coming out of college had a little more juice than, jo- uh, than Jones did, but you're still talking a small, you know, a small college kid, you know, at least, you know, at least Jones went to a Division One school. At least you're talking about, you know, a Division One quarterback, whereas, uh, you know, Carson went to North Dakota State, but he was able to yeah. come in and then and eventually and start from day one. I mean, I'm not. Now, I would say. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'd say that's a it's a fair question, but I don't necessarily know that it's a fair comparison. Okay. And. You know, to your point, it's a fair question with Carson being a small kid, cool, small school kid without, you know, the Big Ten SEC type of pedigree. But going into the draft, what did also have a lot of juice going into that draft. Okay. He, what had one of the highest Wonderlick scores. And I know a lot of people like to poo-poo the Wonderlick test. But especially at the quarterback position, intelligence and decision-making are a key factor. He had an amazingly high Wonderlick score as well as what's known to be a photographic memory combined with athleticism, a cannon arm, and prototypical quarterback size. So the only thing that was truly working against went was the school that he went to. Everything else was in his favor, including winning at a high late level, high rate while he was playing. Daniel Jones, the quarterback from Duke, he showed some promise. I don't want to say that he's not a kid with physical ability, but he's not 6'5 with a cannon arm. And... He went to Duke. Duke's winning tradition is questionable. Unless it's basketball. You know, Unless we're not talking we're not talking Zion. You know, we're talking we're talking Duke football there. So Exactly. I guess so to me, I guess I'm that, just looking for, I guess I'm just looking for reasons why this could work. Not that I even want to. You know, I'm not a fan of the Giants. I want them to lose. I would love for this to fail. But I don't want to bank on it to fail the week after the draft. True. And you know, the one thing I will say is the Giants are likely to have a lot of familiarity with this kid, considering his connection to the Manics. He played for Eli's, one of Eli's coaches. He was a frequent attendee of the Madden quarterback camp. So I'm pretty sure the Giants know what they're getting when they draft this kid, or they, I, they at least believe they have a very good idea of what they're getting in drafting this kid. So I'm not going to just 
bash them now. But the door is still open for future bashing if this kid flops, yeah. which is a which is a it's still a possibility. Mm-hmm. So, who was the can't. who was the last quarterback in this situation that kind of surprised you that you thought might have been picked pretty high, but actually uh, turned it turned out to be okay. The last one who I thought was overdrafted, yeah, it turned out to be okay. That's a tough question. Um, what about Trubisky? Do you think Trubisky falls into that category? Trubisky, Trubisky was definitely thought to be overdrafted. That's probably a good thing. That's very good. Thing. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the jury is still out on Trubisky. Yeah, he had an so-so rookie year, his sophomore campaign, they were a playoff team that didn't advance and didn't do much offensively in the playoffs either. Mm. So, there is still room for that one to go either way as well. I wouldn't call him a bust, but that doesn't mean he's a franchise quarterback either. But, but yeah, Trubisky is probably the best parent a kid who was drafted high or higher than that he thought was proper. But you can also go back to the draft where guys like Christian Ponder were taken. Yeah. That was probably the more of the draft I was thinking of. There were a couple quarterbacks, I believe, in that draft that went early. Earlier than expected. And as far as I remember, none of them really worked out too well from that draft. It was Minnesota took a quarterback, Christian Ponder, Tennessee took a quarterback that year. Um, that was a year there were a few quarterbacks that not, they were. Whenever you hear uncertainty in a draft discussion about quarterbacks prior to the draft, it usually means there's no real sure thing. Like, when Goff and Wentz were in the draft, there was debate over which one was one and which one was two. But there was no real debate over whether both of these guys were potential number one picks in the draft where the other one wasn't there. Hmm. When there was Andrew Luck and RG3, there was no debate over who the top quarterback was. And this year, however, there was, well, you got Kyler Murray, who has questions about his size, but size questions that the quarterback aren't as dominant to the quarterback conversation as they used to be. But after Kyler Murray, the rest of these quarterbacks kind of remind me more of the Christian Ponder draft. Yeah. They list Kyler Murray as, at 5'10", 207 pounds. 5'10", mm-hmm. 207 pounds. That is, very, that is, that is small. But I feel like, you know, his one, his athleticism, and two, I, I believe, 
I I always thought Kyler Murray was a smart quarterback. Absolutely, he has definitely you shown know, himself to be that. He's you know, and, and I think that works to his advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's and not, he's a good athlete. Mm-hmm. Very good athlete. Just by the fact that you know, he actually had to sit down and decide what what was he going to play, pro football or pro baseball. When you and have first the, round pick in both sports, that's crazy. That's crazy. That, that that gives hope for my son, who still believes that he is going to play both pro baseball, pro uh pro baseball, pro football, and be WWE World Heavyweight Champion. <laughs> well, good luck to him. Yeah, good luck to him. So you know, if now if if we're doing this, if we're if we're doing offense, defense, and discourse from just a, a palatial home studio you know we're live on all channels like we have our own network like the odd network you'll know how well he you know how well his career turned out in pro sports now if we're still shoot if we're still doing this show from my basement then you'll also know how how it turned out mm-hmm. but Exactly, but for the for the most part you you agree you're, you're on board with the Kyler Murray pick you like what uh Arizona Arizona did was that a no-brainer for you? Because one thing we did not do, we one thing we did not do on this show, we did not do mock drafts. Didn't have a lot of mock draft f- experts. We were just like, look, you know what? This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna wait for the draft to take place, let the picks take place, and then we'll talk about it. So we never really talked about Kyler Murray as a number one pick. Were you on board? Was that who you saw going number one? It is who I saw going number one. The one thing I found interesting about that was that they took a quarterback first round last year. And while, you know, you you find a trade partner to take Josh Rose, you still are left with dead money and essentially a waste of a draft from last year. No matter how well you may have recovered, you set yourself back with what you did a year ago, taking a quarterback who many believed wasn't the guy to begin with. But because you were desperate for a quarterback, you reached. And I, similarly, I hope that's not, well, I should say I hope. I'm sure the Giants hope that's not what they did this year. Out of desperation, reach for a quarterback who's not truly up to par. But yeah, the Kyler Murray pick, from the standpoint of need and availability, no surprise at all. The fact that they were willing to give up on a first-round pick that was only one year into his career, that says a lot. That says to me, one, they made a mistake. Two, you haven't got front office that's willing to admit their mistake which usually doesn't happen in sports. Guys will ride their players out till the end. And this is actually something a little forward-thinking in sports to be willing to move on from your guy, your pick, that quickly. But as a a fan, what does it say to a fan? If you're an Arizona Cardinals fan, if you're living in Phoenix, Arizona right now, you saw your team draft a player 10th overall in 2000. 18, only to Uh trade him a year later so you can draft Uh a quarterback number one. A quarterback, uh, and and once again, it's like, 
I like Kyler Murray. You know, I I do. I like Ky- I like Kyler Murray, and you know, time will tell if that was if that was a good pick. But you you're looking at a five seven quarterback, and you just giving up on the quarterback you drafted last year. How are you on board with that? If you're an Arizona Cardinals fan, how are you on board with that? How much? How much confidence do you have in your team's organization, in your team's front office, if one year after drafting a quarterback tenth overall, you've now traded him to the uh, you've traded him to the Dolphins, and we can get into what the Dolphins did. You know, if the Dolphins feel like they now have their franchise quarterback, but they've traded him to the Dolphins and drafted somebody else a year later. I completely get well, I, I completely get your point about a front office it, admitting that they're making a mistake and being proactive in correcting that mistake. I completely understand that. But I feel like where that leaves the fans who are sitting back there watching, I mean it's not like like I mean I I just I'm 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 blown away by this. Like, I just can't, I mean, you know, I, this is just unprecedented. I'll say this. As a fan, while if I saw the player and thought he wasn't the guy, I'm happy that he's gone. Assuming I, I didn't believe he was the guy, I'm happy he's gone. But that being said, it also causes me to have pause when I look at my front office and start to think, are these guys really that incompetent that there's a guy who was so bad, you knew he couldn't get it done halfway through his rookie year, but you couldn't tell in three, four years of tape and work out everything else. But a half a season lets you know he, he's not good enough to ever develop. So what went wrong in that evaluation process? Because you're, you're not just saying he's not good enough right now. You went from saying he's a top 10 fit to he's not good enough to play for. So while it does mean you're willing to admit your sense, and also hit that some level of incompetence. And as a fan, that's trouble. It's just not what you want, man. It's not what you want. Not at all. And for me, if anything, and it puts more pressure on Kyler Murray. Like, as of right now, um, you see Kyler, do you believe, and I understand, you know, we're still talking a week after the draft. Yeah, one full week after the draft. But as of right now, I'm just, you know, give your best guess. Kyler Murray starts week one, right? Yes, absolutely. Kyler Murray starts week one, and he has to just come out and just be the truth. Yes. I mean, what other options do they have as a starter? None. Their only other option is in Miami right now. Exactly. So this is the pressure that you've put on under this quarterback. Now we've talked. You know, I just I just talked about how smart I thought he was, and he has ability. He has you know he has tape. You know you know that at least at the college level, Kyler Murray can play the position. But this yeah. is this is the pressure that you have put on this young man. That now this young man has to come out and just be lights out. Has no choice. It's not only for his own career, but for the sake of management as well. So you, 
So, so let me ask you this then, before you know, before we get a little bit more, in, you know, into the rest of the draft, who do you think? What front office has more pressure on them right now, the Cardinals or the Giants? It's close. That, that's a tough question, but I would have to say the Cardinals simply because this is their second year in a row with a 4A into the QZ market. Mm-hmm. You don't get with so many chances to get that right, especially with top 10 picks and one of them being the number one overall. The, the Giants have some sort of wiggle room simply because one, this is their first attempt at taking a first round QB in a while mm-hmm. and last year while they passed on a QB they did draft a generational talent in Saquon Barkley. So that will buy them a little bit of time. Especially if you can squeeze one more year of life out of Eli, which is, you never know what you're going to get out of Eli. That's the thing with him. So the Giants, there's a lot of pressure on Gettleman, but that Cardinals front office, they could all be gone by the end of the year if those poorly. Yeah, I, I guess, if anything, Arizona has more immediate pressure because they've now, they've put it, and it's funny because uh, Cliff Clint, Cliff Kingsbury, uh, the Arizona head coach, says he's taking a, and I'm throwing up air quotes here, a we'll see approach to Kyler Murray starting game one. To me, he has to start game one. There's no way he can't. You can't trade your number one pick from the year before. You have no veteran QB yeah. on the roster that are any good. Yeah. And you have the number one overall pick. He has to start. He has to start. There's no way. This is, you know, if this, this is, is not nineteen eighty five no. where guys would sit on the bench for two, three years and fans and organizations to take mm. they if you're a number one overall pick, they expect you to come in and play immediately. Exactly. I, I and and honest, and honestly, yeah, if you draft at the top of, if you're drafting at the drop the top of the draft, you're drafting a guy you expect to play week one. Yes, there are yes, there are exceptions. There can be exceptions. But for the most part, top of the draft, number one pick, number two pick, number three pick. You know, and in fact, I, I believe top five. Top five at least. Top ten is prob you know top ten maybe top 15, if you're in the top half of the draft, your draft pick should be starting week one. You're looking for a guy who week one you can plug into your starting lineup. Ideally, yes. There are very few positions that you would consider otherwise. Yeah, Yeah, I I believe like, like, like the Giants might be the exception. You know, the Giants might be the exception because they have Eli. So there isn't pressure on Daniel Jones to start week one. But I'm looking at the draft. Kyler Murray should be starting week one. Nick Bosa should be starting week one. Williams out of Alabama playing for the Jets starting week yeah, one. Quentin Williams. Yes. Yeah. Quentin Williams should be starting week one. I like that pick. Uh, what's the ball? Uh, Farrell. Uh, Cleveland. Uh, is it Cleveland? 
uh, Farrell from uh, from uh, Clemson down at Oakland. I like that draft. I like what Oakland did. Oakland, I believe, had a very good draft. Oakland had it. You know, Oakland is. And is that's now, another organization. There was a lot of pressure on yeah. to get things right. Yes, and I think Oakland is right now is probably the early the early favorite to be laughing at all the people who laughed at them the, the year before. When they were Absolutely. when they were when they were stockpiling picks, trading Khalil Mack, trading uh trading Amari Cooper, and people were just you know, and people were like, "What is John Gruden doing?" You look at Oakland's draft. Mm-hmm. You look at what they did. Getting Farrell up at the top of the draft. And the thing you know, is, Oakland. As much as people like to bash Oakland's moves, trading, trading Cooper and Matt, mm-hmm. those were two young players who were going to be in the market for really large contracts on a team that needs a lot and is already paying a quarterback. Mm-hmm. So while people will look at it on the surface and say, you got rid of this talent and you got rid of that talent, they saved themselves a lot of money. And gave themselves a lot of roster flexibility going forward. Yes, that allows Gruden to build a roster in his image. And like it or not, I don't know. And I know I say this about quarterbacks a lot, mm-hmm. but beyond quarterback, name a player who won a championship in recent years while being the highest paid position, highest paid player at that position in the league. Mm. Off the top of my head, rare, I yeah, I can't even think about it. Off the top of my head, yeah. Because when you put that much money into one guy, no matter what the position, it's going to affect your ability to spread talent out across the remainder of the roster. While and while Chicago was in a position to pay Matt because they all have a quarterback on his rookie deal, Oakland has a quarterback making twenty five million about for there about a year, so. The team building philosophy has to be different in Oakland, and they need young talent, and they need to be successful in their draft and develop. And this draft looks like they're off to a good start into it. I I like it. They got Farrell, then they got Jacobs, who's a a really good running back, and and you also got a who uh, who else did they get? Uh, They got Abram, the safety. Their defense got better, and they got a uh, they got a running back who should be in every down who could be in every down running back to take some pressure off that quarterback who you're still paying a lot of money to. I like what Oakland did. Now, before we get to our first break, you mm-hmm. mentioned running back. Yes, and there's one running back I want to ask you about. Okay, the Eagles drafted. Okay, they drafted a running back out yes. of Penn State. What are your thoughts? How do you feel about that pick? I like it. And one of the things I like about him, I, I like him in, I think he's Shady-esque. And I, okay. I think comparing him to, to LaShawn McCoy, I think he can be an every down back who can also catch out of the backfield. You know, I want to see how well he can block and pick up blitzes. I think that might be, you know, is he able to do that? If he can come out and learn and grasp that right off the bat, I like it. I think one of the 
I think I think what works in his favor is the fact that I believe his rookie season he will you know the Eagles are going to be running back by committee. But I don't you know if if Miles Sanders is the guy, I don't think that this is going to that's going to be the case for long. I see running back by committee this year. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you do have Jordan Howard. You do have Jordan Howard in the building to help carry the load. You know, you got oh, Howard. You still have Clement or um, Adam. Yes, I think that I think that is good, and it gives I, I believe it gives Sanders the opportunity to grow into the position. You know, I compared him to Shady McCoy because when Shady McCoy first came to the, to the Eagles, his rookie year, Brian Westbrook was still here. Mm-hmm. And that kind and of it gave Shady a chance to, to grow into the position, ex- learn the yes, the fire point of playing NFL running back. So when he came in and he assumed the job, once they let Westbrook go, Shady was ready. And I think that's what the you know I think that's what the Eagles will do. I think that's perfect for him. What I like about Sanders is he is an everyday back who doesn't have a college career full of everyday back wear and tear. This is uh, a man who spent most of his, most of his career was played by yeah, played behind uh behind Barkley. Barkley was going yes, he was the workhorse last season, but that was really his only his only season being the featured back. So, you know, his body does not have the wear and tear. You know, we talk about you know, we talk about NFL running backs being done by 30. You know, this, you know, this could add a couple seasons to that. You got a young running back, you know, who's not going to be the featured back, who who wasn't the featured back for most of his college career, who's going to come in this year and not be the featured back. So if this is the guy, he has a chance to be the guy for a while. And because he can catch out of the backfield, I think, you know, you know, we always talked about Andy Reid and, you know, subsequently Doug Peterson in Philly. We talked about him, you know, their love for the pass mm-hmm. and, you know, their disregard for the run. But one thing that, you know, we always talk about with Andy Reid offenses, and you see, and you saw it at the beginning when he started in Kansas City, is he was the guy who, who considered those screen passes like runs. You know, throwing to your running back out of the uh, out of the backfield was, um, you know, was almost like a run. It was like, you know, consider an overhand pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a pitch play. Only you threw you threw the ball overhand. Counts as a pass, whatever. But it might as well be a run because you're getting it to Andy your- Reid. Used, Andy Reid used that screen to Westbrook as essentially, like you said, a part of the running game. And that that had its benefits and it had its negatives, in my opinion, because the one thing the Andy Reid team never had that the Eagles Super Bowl team did have was the ability to push the pile in third and fourth and short yarded situations. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily want to see the team go back to being built in a manner where they can't handle short yardage run situations. No. No, no, I understand that. I understand that, and time and time will tell. But I do think that I I do think that Sanders is fast. He's somebody who, when he gets out in the open space, can be you know can be lethal. But I still believe that. 
I don't believe that I have seen enough to say that he can't run in between the tackles if you need him to. Oh, I haven't said that either. Yeah. I, but, you know, he's not, I don't want to say, he's not a small bat. Okay. But he's not He's not the 238 pounds Saquon is either. No, I understand. I, ain't too many people can be Saquon. I hate that guy now. Can't, <laughs> can't believe I hate that guy. I don't want to hate that guy, but I hate that guy now. It's terrible, and I hate the Giants for making me hate that guy. But, and I do, too, just like you said I would. I, I told you, man. I told you. All right, well, look, this is what we'll do. We're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, we will talk NBA playoffs on this edition of Offense, Defense, and Discourse. Remember, you can hear this show in its entirety in podcast form on SoundCloud.com slash B-I-T-W Sports, or you can look for us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Search Best in the World Sports Report. Me, my name is Brown, my partner Jonesy. We will be back in a couple seconds. I don't even want to put a time frame on it. Just know we'll be right back with more offense, defense, and discourse right here. Keep it locked. When you need to be caught up on all that's going on in the sports world, tune into the Best in the World Sports Report with all-knowing John Brown each and every Saturday morning starting at 8 a.m. here on the Philly Go Flow at phillygoflow.com. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. The following is a production of the Lance J Radio Network and Best in the World Sports, a division of Definitive Visions Multimedia. The opinions and views expressed are strictly those of the host and do not represent the views of Lance J Radio Network or NBC Sports Radio. And we are back on another edition of Offense, Defense, and Discourse. My name is Brown. My partner, Jonesy, right here. We are talking NBA NBA playoffs. All right. We're now fully into the second round. Let's what start. some people said may have been the best second round in history. That's debatable. That that is debatable. Is. But so far, you know, each uh, there've been two games in uh each. There've been what two games in each series now. Mm-hmm. And what? Let's see. Every series is split, right? Yeah. No. Uh, uh, no. Excuse me. No. Sorry. No, sorry. Not all of so, them. So, sorry, Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually where I want to start. Okay. You don't mind. I, I want to start with this Houston versus Golden State. All right. And the reason I want to start there is not so much as because of what we're seeing execution-wise as much as what we're hearing complaint-wise. Mm. I actually read an interesting article yesterday that laid out a case as to why James Harden is disrespecting, maybe even ruining basketball with his style of play. Comparing him to the guy in the gym at a pickup game who, while he might be one of the best players in the court, calls every soft foul every time down court mm-hmm. and just sucks and sucks the fun out of the game at doing I don't necessarily feel that way because what, if you're out there with refs and whistles, 
take advantage of the fact that you're out there with reps and whistles. You know? Mm-hmm. Now I, so, I find this I, I find it surprising that you had that that you had that take because you've been you have been a hardened critic uh, a hardened critic you've criticized James Harden and his style of play a lot over the years but you don't have, but you don't believe this you don't see this particular issue as much of a problem is that what you're saying No I don't see this issue as if the rules are there and he's working within the framework of the rules. I'm all, I'm all right with it. But some of the but, now, if, but some of that yeah, is just is downright flopping though. It is. And that that's not if the league decides they want to call it, that's not on like uh, I'm gonna be honest with you. When I was playing basketball, there have been times I've gotten charge calls where I know I full out flop a good six inches before there was any contact. Like I knew the guy was coming at my chest, I knew I could get the call. Why take the hit in my chest? Just go ahead and fall. And I'm going to get the call. If the refs are going to give it to you, take it. My, my only thing is, if you don't like the calls, don't argue with the player for taking advantage of the call. Talk to the league about what they're calling. But as long as the league has the rules that way, take advantage of it. Is Bill Belichick ever not going to try to find a loophole to win? Does that That's make true. Bill Belichick less of a great coach because he, or does it make him a greater coach because he can find those things within the rules that you can take advantage of? And the the, rule, the object is to win, so you're supposed to do everything you can within the framework of the rules to try to win. I'll never knock somebody for that. Well, look, I mean, I guess he's got to try something. Now. Before we go, before we get in, I want to uh, get into it a little bit more. I wanted to ask you a real quick question. There's there's a saying that a lot of people like to use when it comes to playoff basketball. When it comes to playoff sports in general, when it comes, you know, I, they use it in uh, basketball, they use it in football, they use it in baseball. That it's not a series until the home team loses. Do you agree with that? No, not at all. Okay. So you're because you're looking at this uh, Houston series, and they're down 2-0, but they haven't played at home yet. Do do you agree? So you feel like like do you feel like Houston has no chance? Okay, I'll say it this way. Okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna say that a series doesn't start until a home team loses, then this Houston Golden State series will be over before it ever starts. I'll how, say it that way. How so? Because I don't expect Golden State to lose a home game in this series. So if they're not going to lose a home game mm-hmm. and the series doesn't start until they do, this series is over before it starts. Okay. Do you see Golden State winning two in Houston? It's possible. Especially if James Harden is not able to regain full visibility, full clarity in his vision, something that he was saying was an issue in game two after his shot he took, he couldn't really see much of anything, Mm -hmm. or at least not clearly. A less than 100% game James Harden means this series is over at three. Mm. And yes, I know you have to win four games. This series is over at three. All right, I understand. All right, well, 
as of right now, as of today, uh, I'm looking at a report from uh, Tim McMahon from ESPN. He is saying the Rockets are optimistic that star guard James Harden will not have any problems with the vision, with his vision for the rest of this playoff series. They're saying no damage to his cornea. So the Rockets should be good. But even then, that's not saying that Harden's 100%. Exactly. And they need and they need 100% out of Harden. In fact, they probably need about 150 out of Harden. 150%, maybe 150 points. If they think he's going to be the – if they think they're going to be Golden State. I just – I mean – I mean, the level of basketball that Kevin Durant is playing right now. You know what? I'm going to say this because I've been having a conversation with people who like to knock Kevin Durant mm-hmm. for his decision to go to Golden State and saw and this, that, and the other. And they refuse to acknowledge that he is currently the best player in the NBA. I want to put a stop to that right now. Okay. Before Kevin Durant went to Oklahoma City, there was no argument who the two best players in the NBA were. Do you recall that? Two best players before you went to Golden State. Everyone's mind, no question that, were Kevin Durant and LeBron James. Correct? Correct. Now, LeBron James is at a point in his career where he's on the downside. He's Not not that he's not a great player anymore, but he's not quite the player he used to be four mm-hmm. or five years ago. Would you say that's fair? No, I agree. Now, Kevin Durant, on the other hand, his defense, his decision-making, and even his offensive skill set right now are actually probably more polished than they were four years ago. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. So how do we get from him them being the two best players in the league to the guy who people thought was better was taking a step back and the guy who was the only other person in the conversation Nobody wants to acknowledge him. He hasn't gotten worse. He's gotten better. Whether or not we like the move to Golden State, Kevin Durant is hands down the best player in the NBA right now. There are other players who are on the rise. Giannis is on the rise. Kawhi is having a good year and a great playoff. There are great players in the league. Kevin Durant is easily the best player in the league right now. I think... I'm sorry, go ahead. And I was just going to say, with him playing at the level that he's been playing at, specifically during this playoff stretch, it will be near impossible for anyone to deep throws all the state. What you have here is what we talk about all the time. One is the case of narrative. It's narrative over the reality. The narrative that Kevin Durant took the easy way out by going to, going to a loaded... Golden State team that had just beaten them in the play in the playoffs, so people went to use that to knock him. I'm not saying it's right, you know. It, it, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying you know that's that's a legitimate take, but you know that's what people are going to say. You know that's what people are going to do. They instantly do that every time you bring up Kevin Durant. I think what also plays. I think what also plays into it is just the whole is maybe a West Coast bias. Because although, yes, we, we all know who Golden State is. We all know how good they are. The fact of the matter is you don't see Golden State basketball every day because it comes on on the West Coast. So you're not watching Kevin Durant play like the best player in the NBA on a daily basis. You don't see it as, you know, you don't see it as much 
as you've seen for the last 17 years of LeBron James playing in Cleveland and Miami. And now that LeBron is in Los Angeles and you don't see Lakers games as much, you know, you still want to put him up at the top, even though he's clearly lost the step. He's clearly not physically the guy that he was five years ago. So you kind of hold him to that. But it's like, look, you know what? If you watch basketball, anybody who watches basketball, you see. It's like, look, Kevin Durant, the level Kevin Durant is playing at, he would be the best player in the league no matter what team he plays for. Exactly. And that's exactly my point. But people like to hold Golden State against him because he has great teammates. And granted, having great teammates does lighten the load he has to carry during the regular season. But you cannot question the fact that when it comes winning time, when it comes playoff time, and Durant goes all out, there's nobody in the league that has anything for him. Period. Can't, I mean, what can you say? You know, what can you say? What can you do? You know, he's un- he's unstoppable. He, he's he's absolutely unstoppable. He's taking over games. And when you can sit there and it's like what's, what's dangerous about a team like Golden State, you know, you see a player like Durant, what do you say? All right, I'll let him get his points and I'll make the other – I'll make the rest of the team – you know, I'll let him get his points and I'll make the rest of the team beat me. The rest of the team is Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. Exactly. The rest That's of the team is, is is Draymond Green. Guys who guys who can beat you. What kind of a trade off is that? When you're saying, "All right, you know what? Look, KD's going to get it. KD's going to get his. We can't, you know, we'll we'll force the rest of the team to beat you." That's Steph Curry. Steph Curry will shoot forty foot jumpers all day and makes them. A former MVP. A former MVP. Somebody who, a, a player who is in that, who has been in that conversation of best player in the league for years. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, you know, whether you put him in there now, but nonetheless, you know, when you ask and you have a conversation about who are, who is the best player in the NBA, Steph Curry has been in that conversation. Absolutely. He's been in that conversation for a long time. You know, this is still a Golden State team that won 73 win. This team won 73 games before before Durant. Before Durant. So now that he's there, it, it 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 man. I've said it on this show plenty of times. You know, until Golden State is not the NBA champion, my favorite is will be go. My favorite to win it all will be Golden State. And I, I can't argue with you on that one at all. That they are not only the most talented team, but the best constructed team when it comes to meshing styles of play as well. Yes. The, the talent, the group of talent, just fits. It works. Where you look at some teams, he's like, okay, well, I'm not sure how well this player works with that player. And being in Philly, you hear that all the time when people question the fit between yeah. Simmons and B. Mm-hmm. You never hear questions of fit in Golden State. No, 
Not at all. You you know, you don't question the fit and people people trust Steve Kerr. And he's earned that trust. You know, rightfully so. He's earned that trust as a coach and at you know, at, as a handler of personalities, of a as a teacher of basketball, as much as you can teach basketball at the pro level. Mm-hmm. Now, I just you know, I understand at the pro level there's not a lot of teaching, but still, it's his it's his system. He's running his system, and he's getting his players to play in his system. Exactly, he's done a great job of taking the group of talent that was assembled before he got there under head coach Mark Jackson, and taught them how to properly play basketball. One thing I say when it comes to Steve Kerr as a coach, I'm sure you've said the turkey say this before during one of our conversations. Steve Kerr had the opportunity to learn from two of the greatest system coaches in basketball history and Popovich and Bill Jackson. Mm-hmm. And if you watch how Golden State plays, you can see elements of both of those systems kind of being meshed into one beautifully executed ball movement type of system that the league is seeing. It's a great system. Steve Kerr is a great systems coach. He's a great system coach and he's benefited from having great players in his in his system. And just like uh just like Pop with Tim Duncan and Manu and Tony Parker, just like Phil Jackson would show with, with Kobe and Shaq, and before that, Pippen and Jordan. You know, now Steve Kerr has benefited because he's, you know, he has Clay Thompson, he has Steph Curry, he was able to get Kevin Durant. And then you have bench players, you have role players like an Andre Iguodala. Like you know Livingston, like Draymond Green. So yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's why history will always be on Golden State side until someone comes in and knocks them off. Now, a team that now, one thing I, I'll let you know. Forgive me for interrupting. Uh, no problem. I, I like I like to give credit to Steve Kerr for is Draymond Green. Draymond Green was a second-round draft pick who, when he came in the league, Mark Jackson had him backing up David Lee. Draymond Green found a role in Steve Kerr's offense. Being a Michigan State guy, he understands how to play in a quality basketball system. So when Steve Kerr recognizing that, and being able to take the talent of what many consider to be an undersized power forward and turn him into an all-star dream teamer even is a heck of an accomplishment. That's a major coaching feat. It's credit to the player, credit to the player's work ethic, but credit has to go to the coach as well for seeing that this guy who was a second-round pick coming off the bench backing up a former all-star David Lee was the future at that position. I agree. Now, another team that that not me, 
not Mike, but our good friend Anthony Gilbert came on and said could have could have a good chance to defeat Golden State is the Denver Nuggets. Mm-hmm. Denver, they are now tied in their series. As of right now, they are tied with Portland. As of uh, as of Thursday morning, they play again. Fr- they play again. Fr- uh, let's see. They play Friday night. They they play Friday night. But as of right now, they're tied with Denver. One game, one took them seven games to beat uh, San Antonio in the first round. Anthony is not here to defend that pick. Mike, you are. Let me ask you. <laughs> what do you think of the showing of Denver? Are the, Do you... I know... Okay. I'll I guess, say this. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I picked one first round upset. I picked OKC to beat Portland. And I came on last week and apologized to the people... I admitted that I was wrong and I was right. It took a, and I had to be a big person to do that. And I was proud of you, man. That that showed growth. <laughs> you showed growth that that day. But the team I got, I picked to get upset in the first round, is now the team I'm picking to make it to the conference finals. Okay. I I think Denver's youth will betray them in this round. Mm. I I originally had OKC beating them rather than Portland, but with Portland beating OKC, I'm just going to take Portland to beat them. Their youth, I think, definitely will be an issue. But Jokic is a dominant player, one of the two best bigs in the league, two best bidders in the league right now are Jokic and Embiid. But NBA playoffs, as we all know, is a grown man game. And Denver's just not ready. That's the So, and Damian Lillard is playing with what seems to be the ultimate chip on his shoulder right now. He is. He definitely I is. Think it will, I think it will take a team like a Golden State with multiple weapons, multiple high-level weapons to be able to Stop what Dave Lillard is doing right now. That man, after last season's disappointment in the playoffs, has come in with a supreme focus this year. And he's probably, I think he's he's probably playing the best basketball of anybody in the West who is not currently on the Golden State Warriors. Absolutely. Dame Lillard is having himself a year. Dame Lillard is having himself a playoffs. So look, let's let's do this. Let, let's talk about let's talk more because we we have to get into this a little bit more. We need to switch over to the East. So we're going to take a real quick break on offense, defense, and discourse. And when we come back, we will continue our conversation about the NBA playoffs. Just a reminder: you can hear this podcast on SoundCloud.com/slash BITW Sports. And you can download it on Apple Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Just search Best in the World Sports Report. Me, Jonesy, Brown, we'll be back. Offense, defense, and discourse.
When you need to be caught up on all that's going on in the sports world, tune into the Best in the World Sports Report with all-knowing John Brown each and every Saturday morning, starting at 8 a.m. here on the Philly Go Flow at phillygoflow.com. Man, do I love card night. You ready, boys? You got a king? Go fish that. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The following is a production of the Lance J Radio Network and Best in the World Sports, a division of Definitive Visions Multimedia. The opinions and views expressed are strictly those of the host and do not represent the views of Lance J Radio Network or NBC Sports Radio. Offense, defense, and discourse, we are back. My name is Brown. My partner, Jonesy, is right here. What's good, my friend? Oh, man, having a good time today. Talking basketball, talking Dame Lillard, talking Kevin Durant, talking NBA playoffs, and now we're talking Eastern Conference. We got Milwaukee and Boston. I think a lot of people lost their minds when Boston came out on one week one, uh, game one, I should say. People were just like, you know, and I, I have no problem admitting, you know, that Boston is playing better basketball. They're playing, a, they're playing, they could be coming up to their best stretch of basketball. They're getting hot at the right time. But I think there was a little bit of overreaction. And that's, that, I think that tends to happen when, you know, that tends to happen after game one. People believe that whatever happens in game one is going to happen for the rest of the series. I think you've seen that before. We've seen we've, we've seen that before. And people, you know, when you get to game one, and the thing about the playoffs, especially in the NBA playoffs, I see game one, I see what happens in game one, no matter what the series. And I feel like the first thing that you have to ask after a game one is how – how sure are you? How confident are you that what just happened in game one can happen three more times? You saw Boston handle Milwaukee in game one. But can can Boston play like that? Can Boston play that well? And do you think Milwaukee will play that poorly three more times? That's the question you have to ask. Uh- I'll, I'll say it this way. As we transition from the West last segment to the Eastern Conference this segment, let me be clear. As we discuss these two different theories that are happening in the East, I am actually talking about two different theories. Okay. Because it's going to sound, like I say, very, very similar thing. So now, that being said, we are talking about the Boston and Milwaukee series. Boston is a team that has Kyrie Irving, who's won a championship, and is actually, so far in this playoff, playing the best basketball I've seen him play in his career. You've got a Gordon Haywood, you've got Al Horford, and then a plethora of young studs filling out the rough. Whereas Milwaukee, you've got a lot of young players who are in their first playoff run. And Round one versus 
Detroit, they were severely outmatched talent-wise, Detroit was. Yes. In this round, Milwaukee does not out-talent, outmatch Boston the same way. And what you saw in game one was a young team not knowing what to expect getting smashed in the mouth. Game two was the game where, okay, they know what level of basketball they're up against now, and they respond. That is often the case with young teams in the playoffs. As they advance and get further than they have before, they're facing a new challenge, and they just don't know what to expect. Game one in a series like that, I, my exact words to a friend of mine a couple days ago were, never bet game one in a series on a young team. They don't know what they're getting into. And that was essentially what I saw from Milwaukee and Boston. Milwaukee in game one, they didn't look like they weren't good enough. They looked like they were unprepared for what they were going to have to face. That was the difference in what I saw between one, game one and game two. Boston knew what they were going to face at game seven. And that's excuse Milwaukee knew what they were going to face at game seven. Boston, they played at a great level in game one, and they came back in game two and played at the same level and found out playing the same level isn't going to work. So now we have to see if Boston is going now going home, raise their level of play. And I'm not sure if that's possible. Boston very well may have peaked already with the way they play play off. So you think Boston has played the you've now seen you've now seen two games. Mm-hmm. Boston comes out game one. Handles them. Beats them by 22 points. Kyrie Irving was on fire, both scoring the ball and passing the ball. 26 points, 11 assists. Al Horford comes up big, 20 points. They then come back and then lose the next game by 21 points. Exactly. Giannis was Giannis, 29 points, 10 rebounds. Middleton was a beast, 28 points. Seven three-pointers in the game. Do you do you believe, now you've seen two games, do you believe Boston has played the very best that they can play? I don't believe that game two was Boston's best, but I do believe that Boston may have plateaued as far as their ability to raise the level of play that they have pretty much been maintaining throughout the playoffs. Game two was a down game. I don't expect them to come out and lose by 20 points. But I don't expect them to come out and win by 20 points. Okay. I think the remainder of this series will be mostly games decided within that five to seven point range. And I see Milwaukee and Sitton pulling it off. Now, let me ask you a similar question. What did you see a game two for Milwaukee? You did watch that game, right? Yes. What did you see in game two that you thought allowed Milwaukee to 
rebound from the poor performance they put up in game one. I, honestly, I think poise. I think I think Milwaukee showed a lot of poise. I think you get blown out, you get beat game one by twenty two points at home. That's embarrassing. That is a problem. That, that's definitely a problem. You know, but how do you, you know how do you bounce back from that? You know, I. I look at game, you know. I'm look, you look at game one. You see, and you see, of course, Jan, you know, Giannis twenty two points, seven of twenty one. I think, for, you know, first and foremost, you know that Giannis is not going to play that poorly two games in a row. And what did he do? He comes, and what is, he, and what does he do in the next game? He comes back twenty nine points. Now he was seven from fifteen. Fresh shot. Made the same amount or less shots for That's mm-hmm. a much more efficient game. Much more efficient game. Something I noticed, and I'm, I wanted to know if you noticed this too. Where has Jason Tatum been this series? Jason Tatum in this series is – this is one of those things where Tatum is a guy who in a situation like – this his game would normally dictate that he would step up, do more, or that's at least what you would think. But I don't know how comfortable Tatum is with himself and his own game being a secondary offensive option to Kyrie Irving. And while Kyrie is playing well, facilitating the team well, I'm just not sure how how well that works specifically for Tatum, who's known for being a more of a one-on-one individual score. Whereas in last year's playoff, he had more opportunity to do that with Kyrie Irving not being on the floor. This year, Kyrie Irving is the guy who in crunch time in those big moments wants to have the ball in his hand and wants to, wants to take over. I throw out no. I throw out Jason Tatum's name specifically because we do this show from Philly. We're both mm-hmm. can, we both consider ourselves Philadelphia 76ers fans. And a lot of people when it comes to talk of basketball, they compare Jason Tatum you know because where he was drafted with uh in regards to Markel Fultz. Fultz is gone, Tatum is still playing. But they also compare him a lot to Ben Simmons just because their rookie years were the same year. And it just seemed like last year people were convinced that Jason Tatum was a star in the making. That Jason Tatum proved himself to be a star. And now I'm seeing that star with four points in one game, five points in the next game. This is a start, you know, and, you know, and that might, and I understand. And I say this in full, you know, you know, fully prepared to acknowledge that this could just be a knee-jerk reaction. That I could be looking deeper into this than I should. But I'm sitting here and I'm looking at a box score and I see a guy with five points in one game, uh, four points in the other game, and he's supposed to be that next big thing. 
Now we sit up here in this city and we criticize Ben Simmons for every misstep that he has. Every time Ben, you know, every bad game, every time he doesn't stuff the stat sheet in a Sixers win, we're killing Ben Simmons. I'm looking at Jason Tatum, who a lot of people would love to say is better than Ben Simmons. Not be better than Ben Simmons. Not this season. Not this postseason. Do you agree? No. I don't agree. Okay. One, I will say this. One, as far as this season is concerned, I think that goes back to the point I just made. Ben Simmons playing point guard actually has the ball in his hands and has more opportunity because he's not depending on a guy like Kyrie Irving to get him 20 points a game. That being said, as far as Tatum last year versus Ben Simmons last year and people anointing Tatum the star, people who know basketball also had one concern that was fairly common, and that was Tatum appeared to be a lot closer to his ceiling than Ben Simmons did. Where Tatum, you saw, he was absolutely more polished player last season, last year's layoff. He, Simmons was the player who everyone universally saw had much more room to improve his game. So this year you are seeing those improvements from Simmons. But do you believe that? And, do you believe that this is Jason Tatum coming back down to earth, or this is just more of Kyrie's back? So Tatum has to make some adjustments, and he has to sacrifice a little bit for the team. Have you been listening to me for the last year, <laughs> dude? If you have, you know exactly how I feel. This is exactly what I've been saying. I, I what happened? I didn't told the you. Of a certain number eleven. I, I've told you. I understand. Look, can, can, look, man. I am the I, I am the Khalid Elamine of Talk Sports Radio. Don't let this girth fool you. I want to facilitate. I want to set up my teammates. I understand. I, I, I might be a little husky, but I want to handle the rock. So I'm just gonna set you. I know what you've been saying. I'm setting you up. I'm putting you in a position to drive this home. I'll listen to you. Well, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Kyrie Irving was definitely going to take away opportunities from some of those young players who had the ability to shine last year in the last year's postseason run. And then this year, with his return through the season and then through the playoffs, many of those young players saw that growth be done. Agreed. Let's just call it what it is. Okay. Jalen Brown, mm-hmm. primarily Jalen Brown and Jay Tatum. And then T- Terry Rozier would probably be third on that list, although Terry Rozier may be first on that list because his minutes and touches would have seen the most significant increase this year had there been no Kyrie Irving. So from that standpoint, yeah, Kyrie – and I don't want to say it like I'm saying Kyrie is playing bad basketball. No, not necessarily. No. Basketball, I've seen him play. But he's also finding guys like Jason Hay- Jason Hayward getting involved in the um, offense again. I mean, not Jason, Gordon Hayward. 
being involved in the offense again. He's been finding his shot, finding his opportunities. And he plays that win position just like Tatum and Brown do. You can't get 20 points for everybody. So someone's touches and opportunities are going to be going to suffer. It just happens to be the young guys who are on ball contracts instead of these big guys who you paid max money to, like Irvin and Hayward. They're going to get their touches. Agreed. Agreed. Now, look. You raised a very good point, and I want to kind of use that to pivot to the other series in the East, Philly and Toronto. One point that you made earlier, and I wanted to kind of see how well you applied this to this series, said don't bet on the young team in game one. Don't bet on the young team in game one. Sixers have lost game one in the first round and have now lost game one in the second round. Do you think that was both because of you? They won go. In both series now, they won, They lost game one, came back, and won game two. How much do you attribute that to you? In both series, you actually saw two young teams get smacked in game one and then, resp- and then respond in a completely different manner in game two. And when we started talking about the Milwaukee versus Boston series, I, re- I asked you to remember that I'm talking about two different because what I was going to say sounded very similar. The Sixers were in a similar situation to Milwaukee, whereas the Sixers were against a more experienced, more veteran team, and they got smacked in the mouth in game one. In game two, in game two, they responded. They knew what they were up against. They came out more prepared and, as you said, more poised. And you saw a very different result. So I would say it's a very similar series in terms of matchup. Not necessarily stylistically, but in terms of experience factors, a very similar dynamic at play in both these Eastern Conference series. And and I thought think we saw that play out on the court in the first two games. Game three in both of these series will let you know a lot about the younger team. If Milwaukee or Philly can get a 2-1 lead, Boston and Toronto respectively are in significant trouble. I understand. I understand. You also talked about how everyone – Basically, you said everyone can't score twenty points tonight, and you are, and you're abs- everyone can't score twenty points tonight, and you are absolutely right about about that. You're, I guess, I think people got spoiled by this high-powered Sixer offense, in the sense that the regular season when defenses are game plan. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you got Joel and B putting up big numbers. Jimmy was putting up big numbers. Tobias had serviceable numbers. Ben Simmons had serviceable numbers. And you were getting numbers from JJ Reddick. But in the playoffs, you're not going to get that from you're not going to get that from your starting five. Defenses tighten up. You're not. They're not going to allow you to run the fast break as much. They're going to force you to execute in the half court. 
And these are things that'll absolutely affect the Sixers' offensive output, but not, not necessarily their ability to win. Exactly. And the part, and I guess for me, and if I may speak to the Sixer fan who's down on Tobias, who's down on who's down on JJ Reddick, might even be down on uh Ben Simmons or Jimmy Butler. It's like it's they're not going to put up those big numbers every night. But the question is, when do they put up those numbers? When do they hit shots? I need to buy I don't I understand I might not get 20 points a night from Tobias Harris, but as long as he hits big shots in that fourth quarter, I can, you know, if you're getting... The only question I'm asking is, did we win? Exactly. Exactly. You got a big game, you know, you, Jimmy Butler has been huge down the stretch so far in these playoffs. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Butler, he's been their closer. He's been their closer. And he's been, effect- and he's been an effective closer. Yes. But still, you've gotten you've gotten big shots from Tobias Harris. You've gotten great defense from Ben Simmons. I know I talked about it earlier on. Uh, I talked about it earlier on a, another podcast. I had asked had Ben Simmons arrived, and the answer was no. But I do think that he has emerged as probably, you know, one of if not the best defender on this team. He's played great defense so far in this in this playoffs. And you add that to a steady dose of Joel Embiid. And when you can get a closer like Jimmy Butler, all you need is Tobias Harris to hit some shots every now and then. All you need is J.J. Reddick to hit some shots now and then. J.J. Reddick was ice cold first half of uh, game one. Came out in game two. Came out in game two and started hitting big shots. Now they kind of fell apart after he got that technical when he got hit in the face. That kind of started the downward slide. But you saw what they could, he was bringing them back into the game by hitting big shots. I will say this to your point, though, about Benson and defense. So all you have to do to really appreciate that is not look at necessarily the box score because you see Kawhi Leonard scored, what, 36? 37 in game two. Look at the more advanced numbers, his efficiency numbers, his shooting percentage, his point per possession, and those type of numbers when Ben Simmons is guarding him versus anyone else. There is a dramatic difference that Ben Simmons has made when he is the primary defender on Kawhi Leonard. And similarly, the one adjustment that I might be most proud of Brett Brown making for all of those who like to say Brett Brown can't make adjustments mm-hmm. was the MB guarding Siakam matchup yes. in game two. Yes. In game one, Siakam went crazy. His length and quickness was a problem for most of the Philadelphia defenders. It was not an issue at all for Joel Embiid. Embiid actually seemed to have Siakam quite frustrated in points in game two. I like that. I like that, and I think it's... And that um, was a tremendous coaching adjustment, in my opinion. I think you saw bits and pieces of that in the late-season matchups with Milwaukee, where you saw... where you saw Joel Embiid guarding Giannis. And in those... I thought... 
I thought, to your point, when you start looking at efficiency, when you look beyond just the surface of the box score, because the box score will tell you in all those games of Sixers versus uh, Bucks, Giannis just went off and just exploded. You're looking at 40 points, 50 point, you know, 40 and 50 point games. But if you look at how Joel defended him, it tells a different story. Mm -hmm. And the same with this, exactly. and the same with game two with Siakam. And it's funny, it, it's funny because I know you. I know your wit. I know your style. So you tweeted out after game two. You know, you just put it out there. Brett Brown can't make Brett Brown can't make uh, adjustments. So I. I'm sorry. Say that again. I said the tweet was fire Brett Brown. He can't make adjustments. Yes, I I knew where you were going with that because I talked to you every week. I talk. You know, we talk face to face every week. We talk on Twitter almost every day. But it was like I'm sitting there like. When you put that out there, I'm like, man, this boy is gonna get roasted because they just don't they they don't know that he's being you know they don't know he's being sarcastic because mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is Brett Brown can make adjustments. He made magnificent adjustments from game one to game two, and 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 my tweet, of course, as you knew, was tongue in cheek, pure satire, dark sarcasm because. I was simply drawing attention to the fact that that is one of the primary complaints from the fire Brett Brown crowd. Yes. He doesn't know how to judge. He doesn't know how to do this. He did a masterful job from game one to game two. So let me let me ask you this. What is what do you feel is there a more telling victory? A game one victory or a game two victory? Sixes come out you know, Sixers come out in game in game two, make adjustments, and are able to win a game in Toronto. Would you feel differently about their chances had the had the fortunes been reversed? Had it played out where the Sixers won in game one and lost in game two, I'd have to, of course, consider how each game played out. But the fact that they were able to take a punch in the mouth in game one the way they did to a team they hadn't beaten in 13, what turned into 14 straight games, or I'm sorry, against Kawhi, who had, who had never lost to Philly in 14 straight games after game one, and respond the way they did in game two, that does give me a lot of confidence. One. They're not there. Two, the coach is able to adjust. Three, there are matchup issues going both ways. Seeing it play out the way it did, I can't say for certain, but I think seeing it play out the way it did does provide me with an extra sense of confidence as opposed to it going the other way. Okay. Well, before we get before we get out of here, let me uh let me ask you one last question on this series. Is Toronto in trouble? Yes. Yes, they are. And I didn't see myself saying that before this series started. 
Okay. Well, look, man, only time will tell. That's why they play the game. So we're going to come back next week, and we're going to talk about this because you could either have been absolutely right and just showing off your genius, or I'm going to roast you for being wrong. It'll be fun either way. It'll be fun either way. Well, look, we are going to get on out of here. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Offense, Defense, and Discourse. Always a pleasure talking sports with the man, Mike Jones. Who? Uh, Mike Jones. We always have fun, man. We always. Always fun doing this with you. Always, always. Well, look, once again, you can download this podcast at any time. Hit us up. Uh, You can hit us up on Twitter. Twitter, O underscore D underscore discourse. You can download the podcast, soundcloud.com slash BITW sports. And you can go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and search Best in the World Sports Report. My name is Brown. His name is Jonesy. We will be back next week, you guys. Enjoy the sports. We'll talk to you later. Peace, y'all. You feeling this podcast? To hear this and more, go to soundcloud.com. Slash BITW Sports or on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and search Best in the World Sports. The proceeding was a production of the Lance J Radio Network and Best in the World Sports, a division of Definitive Visions Multimedia. The opinions and views expressed are strictly those of the host and do not represent the views of Lance J Radio Network or NBC Sports Radio.